the reading of the Scriptures from Isaiah 62, reading verses 10 to 12. So I invite your uh, reverent but also joyful attention to the reading of God's Word. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. I'm not unmindful that uh, most of us go through life uh, and we uh, engage many invitations to do many different things. We're always being invited to something. We're always being invited to give our attention, our affections, uh, certainly our money to all of the causes of the world, whatever they might be. Invitations, they're important. I would commend to you the reality that this morning there is uh, uh, before us uh, the greatest invitation of all time. It is solemn in its uh, soberness and at all that it means because it embraces eternity in the presence of God. It is an invitation, of course, that uh, can be rejected, resisted, uh, but not without uh, incredible price. Uh, So that in that sense, as a church, it's important for us to pay heed to it. Uh, And again, the invitation before us. Uh, the, uh, The people here, children of Israel, are invited to receive Salvation, and of course, it's, uh, it's many rewards. Uh, it's interesting to me that most of the previous texts were a look at the grandeur of the future in the recovery of the city of Jerusalem, the new Zion, if you will. And all that awaits uh, the rewards of the faithful. Contextually, this text, given the future, is an invitation in the present The form is most instructive. Uh, Verse 10 has seven commands. A couple of them are repeated. uh, I think stressing the importance of the response. Seven commands followed verses 11 to 12 uh, by reasons to respond appropriately to the commands. Well, before we begin to look at uh, the invitation, uh, any any invitation is only as important as, uh, as the one inviting. Uh, typically, we give uh, greater heed to uh, invitations from family, uh, invitations from someone who perhaps uh, has important stature in our community. Uh, I think that's enough said, but we come here Uh, to the greatest uh, invitee of all times, of course, uh, ultimately in the majesty of God. So that the invitation that we are soon to look at needs to be understood of in light of who God is. And there perhaps is no better place to go in all of the theology of the book of uh, Isaiah than uh, to the commissioning of the prophet, uh, Isaiah chapter 6. 
Uh, because here we have uh, encapsulated one of the greatest pictures of the majesty of God, I think, in uh, all of the prophecy. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling uh, the temple. It's an expression, again, that, uh, uh, that God is king. Well, of course, there's many kings. That doesn't make God special in and of itself. But the point of the text, he's the only king. There is no other king uh, above him. That all kings, all monarchs, princes, judges, justices, uh, that are not subordinate to him. And the perfections of his majesty terrify the prophet. Because he recognizes that he is unclean. He, he brings nothing to the throne room of God. That he, again, he is face to face with the majesty of God, infinite eternal perfections, and all that God is and who will be, and all of his glory that's filling the temple of which Isaiah has now been invited. And so his standing before God, of course, is one bereft uh, of any qualifications whatsoever. In many respects, he could be rejected, but he's not rejected. How is, going, how is he going to be received? Well, notice the text, the latter part of, of uh, the seventh verse. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. God acts in sovereign grace. There's something, of course, as you know, of uh, an idolatrous polemic here, uh, because in the ancient Near East, before an idol was commissioned to give service in Revelation, uh, there was a lip-cleansing ceremony. So immediately at the outset of the text, there is a polemic against idolatry. But nonetheless, an act of God's sovereign grace, that God acts upon one who is unclean and has no qualifications whatsoever to bring before God, but God forgives him. The majesty of God in sovereignly forgiving his people. In and of itself, it's a marvelous representation of the gospel that God forgives. All of us have an eternal weight of debt before God, and we cannot cleanse ourselves. We have no qualifications with which to bring. In the majesty of God, he acts, he cleanses, he forgives. Uh, you bring nothing before God. Isaiah brings nothing, but God forgives him and commissions him. So that it's important before we look at the invitation itself that we understand the majesty of God and how he deals with his servants in sovereign grace to effect forgiveness. Uh, but again, it's important, I think, for our culture because if you lose who God is, you will lose the importance of the invitation before us. And I think in many respects, our culture is losing a sense of the transcendence and the majesty of God. And the moment you lose that, his invitations are like every other invitation. I can respond when I want to. I can respond when it fits my timetable, and on and on. And so important to the invitation before us is the sovereignty of God, that he is king over everything, and that you, among all people, 
are totally and absolutely subordinate to him in every respect. And apart from his forgiving you through Jesus Christ our Lord, uh, you cannot stand in his presence and will be, of course, totally rejected. So any invitation is only important as the one who invites for us, it is God, who issues an invitation to salvation uh, found for us in Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 10. And while the invitation is many things, uh, if I could encapsulate it in but one thing, is an invitation to act quickly and to respond with incredible alacrity and responsiveness based upon the nature of him who invites. Uh, first part of the invitation is, again, verse 10, go through the gates and then the imperative. And uh, all of these uh, uh, invitations here are commands. Uh, they're not invitations per se. I get lots of invitations that I reject. I was... Uh, uh, Disturbed yesterday, my phone was ringing off the wall of people inviting me to give money uh, to vote for them in light of the upcoming uh, primary elections in the state of Oklahoma. Well, I simply blew them all off because of the one that was inviting. But you must be very careful with this invitation because of the one inviting is the Lord God himself. Go through the gates and then it's repeated. The reference really is not specified. Is it the gates of the world cities? As in, uh, leave the gates of the cities of the world. Uh, or is it the gates of the end time Zion? Enter, enter the great city. And I don't really know the answer to that question. Perhaps it's both. Uh, Isaiah chapter 26 in, in verse 2. Uh, something of, uh, of this theology. Entering entering the gates. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. And then notice how it defines the righteous nation, the one that remains faithful. It's an invitation. Uh, enter, enter the gates, whether depart the cities of the world or enter the gates of the end time Zion. It's interesting that... Uh, the Apostle John, last chapter, the book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. That in a moment, heaven is opened and there's an invitation issued, of course, by the majesty of the greatness of God, high and lofty and exalted, and the train of his glory fills everything and, of course, fills the city. And the gates are open. Invitation, enter. Uh, by the way, it's an invitation that breaks upon you if you're not a Christian, that the gates are open. Uh, and certainly, in eternity, the gates will be open for all who are in Christ. And all of the, all of the rest uh, will have uh, the gates of the city closed. I, I happen to tend in this particular context to, uh, to take uh, the invitation as uh, leave, leave the city that you're in and start the end time exodus uh, for uh, 
the gates of the city of end time Zion. It's like uh, Bunyan's great allegory of the Christian faith, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim leaves, he leaves the gates of the city of destruction. Uh, he, know it's under a, he knows it's under a sentence of death. He knows that to remain there is incredible peril. And so he leaves and walks through the gates of that city. Uh, Uh, the great uh, Christian father Augustine, uh, the city of man, leave, leave the city of man for the city of God. And leave it because of him who issues the invitation and leave it based, of course, upon the qualification only, only those washed uh, by the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way that you can properly respond, and namely the sovereign work of God in affecting forgiveness and grace. But leave the cities of the world, we must. Remain in them, then you will perish. And there is, of course, no escape. Always amazed by how proud people are of their cities. I occasionally watch uh, the Travel Channel, Parisian Pride, the city of Paris. Again, it's the way of man to think their cities are special, but there's really only one city that beckons the heart uh, in light of its majesty to leave the cities of the world, to leave aside affection loyal to them uh, for the great city of God. The second imperative embraces uh, something of a road-building uh, metaphor, uh, thus we read, clear the way for the people. Clear the way. Uh, this is not new theology to uh, the book of, uh, of Isaiah. Uh, we find a similar thought in Isaiah chapter 40 uh, in verse 3. Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert the highway for our God. It's interesting that this invitation comes from the mouth of uh, the great Baptist uh, as he comes to issue an invitation for people. Uh, it's found because I think uh, Matthew is alluding uh, to the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, uh, the Baptist comes upon the scene and he issues uh, an invitation in light of who Christ is and that he is coming. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, in verse 3, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, the context, again, is John the Baptist calling for repentance and radical transformation in light of Christ as the Messiah and the dawning of the end-time kingdom. So it's an invitation filled, of course, with urgency. The day is late. The Messiah has come. He's inaugurated his kingdom. His kingdom will win. Nothing will stop him until he conquers everything and everyone. The picture, though, here is quite beautiful to me. In Isaiah, we are enjoined to go to him. In Matthew, he comes to us. That sense, the invitation is quite beautiful in Matthew. 
because he comes to us to effect salvation. And again, I think all of it speaks to the urgency of the invitation. Give this invitation short shrift and uh, the price you will pay is incredible. Most people really do not care. Uh, they have other things to do that are more important. But they really need to consider the invitation of the prophet Isaiah in the mouth of the great Baptist in light of what is about to occur in the coming of Messiah. The third invitation, uh, again, Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 10, uh, build up. Build up the highway. It embraces that the way has divine sanction and is clearly marked. Uh, always struggled with map reading. Uh, topographic map, but always just kind of wonder, what am I really looking at? Is that a mountain? Is it a saddle? Is it a valley? Always was confused, but uh, no big deal. But this, this highway is clearly marked in Scripture. Uh, it has divine sanction. It is a summons that there is but one way to God. The end time exodus has begun and Christ has sanctioned it in himself in his death and resurrection. That the Bible is a highway with incredible clarity. Uh, one of the great doctrines that the reformers bring us that we oftentimes, I think, forget in the church today, it's uh, given little thought uh, whatsoever, uh, but uh, perspicacity of Scripture. It's kind of a strange word. Uh, probably you've never spoken it in your entire life, but it's the fact that the Scriptures are clear that Christ is the only way. That He is the highway, He's the road, He's also the shepherd who guides us in our way. He's the pillar, He's the cloud, the great shining light to enlighten our way. The majesty of the clarity of Scripture, the highway. It's very interesting, if perhaps uh, uh, the thought has already entered into your mind, there's a countervailing idea in the New Testament uh, that the road is difficult, perilous, and dangerous. Uh, it takes uh, uh, twists and turns, uh, great, great struggle. Uh, Matthew, perhaps, is uh, the best here. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter that gate. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Boy, in that vein, the invitation is all the more profound. To strive, to struggle, for the gate is narrow and difficult. Its passageways are constrictive. And all along the way, we must trust God for deliverance. So Matthew brings, I think, a new sense of clarity to what it means to build up the way, to get on the road, to start the exodus. And that is that the way of discipleship ends in the consummation of the kingdom. We have, uh, typically in the American church, uh, two-tiered structure of Christianity. Uh, those who come to Christ and then the special few that are disciples. I don't think that you could really find that or justify such an interpretation in the New Testament. 
All of us who name the name of Jesus Christ are disciples and followers. And we turn away from that uh, to the broad, wide gate that leads to destruction. Uh, there's something of this, I think, that's captured in a very beautiful way in the prophet that follows Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 15. Because perhaps it speaks to the church today. Jeremiah chapter 18, 15 verse, For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods. And they have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths, to walk in bypaths, not on a highway. They've fallen out of the right way from the ancient paths. One of the things I think that's uh, terribly sad about our own church culture in America is we forget that there is historic orthodoxy, that it's the ancient way a way that has been traveled by all of the ancient churches and the people of God, again, in historic orthodoxy. We know nothing of that today. We have our own way, whatever feels good to us, however self-defined we want it to be. It's simply a, a hallmark, if you will, of modern-day youth culture. Grace Bible Church has its way, and I have my way, and they're all on the same road to heaven. That's the way to ruin. Our way is clearly marked and identified. The great confessions of the Reformed Church are an expression of the theology that's been deposited to us. I always remind you of the great words of Jude chapter 3. He's summoning those who read to the orthodoxy that has been left to the church, clearly define the ancient paths, the steadfast way to God. Once for all, Jude says, left to the church. We know nothing of that today. We think that we can add and subtract, and well, there was a deposit to the apostles, and Oh, come on. I mean, that's an anachronism. We can simply add what we want to add. And isn't the Christian faith just like a great cafeteria? Pick and choose what you want. Well, that's the invective of Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 15. You've left the old ways for your new ways, and you've stumbled out of the truth, and you are lurching into great error because you have rejected the faith once for all deposited with the church by the apostles. So it's an invitation in that sense from the prophet Jeremiah to get back on the old way. And again, I remind you, it's a way that's clearly marked in Scripture. It's not some esoteric secret path. Confessions of the church, the Scriptures, it's the voice of God vox deus, that Christ is the incarnate word, the way, and he has left for us a written word in Scripture as the very voice of Christ himself to tell us the way and to be quick about it. Next, the imperative, uh, remove the stones or remove the obstacles. Obstacles to the Christian faith are ever-present in our lives. 
And we must be very careful about obstacles. It's an invitation to get rid of them. If there is something in your life that's an obstacle to your faith, learn to jettison it. I, I used to love the uh, ancient ship movies where there's a cargo ship caught in a terrible storm and they're throwing the cargo overboard. Oh, oh, oh wait a minute, there's my beautiful china. Uh, there's uh, my grandmother's silver piece. Uh, uh, you know, we're like Lot's wife wanting to hold on to our last look at a city under destruction. Isaiah says, get rid of the obstacles. If anything gets in your way, get rid of it. The way of God. I don't know what that means to you. Reminded uh, listening to uh, a sermon by someone considering inviting to the next Warfield lecture series and uh, he brought up the great uh, disease and sin of pornography. He quoted some incredible statistic of how that's entered the church and is well accepted. I would simply tell you, if you've got such literature in your home, you better get rid of it, you better get rid of it quickly because it will destroy everything about you and your family and your children if you have any. It's a reminder that you need to remove that obstacle. I'm reminded of an obstacle, I think, in technology in our culture. I'm all for technology. It can be a great blessing. Do you know what? It can also be a curse. I have nothing wrong with Facebook. Certainly a need for it, a use for it, I guess. I mean, I don't, I don't use it, don't have a clue as to what it means. And again, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anyone here that uses Facebook. But you know what? If you spend more time on Facebook than you do the Scriptures, maybe you need to sober up and give thought. Get on with your life. Speak with your family and your friends or those you cherish, those who are your colleagues at work. Again, I bring no definition as to your use. Only the reminder, don't turn it into an obstacle to the faith and stumble over it. and Get back upon the ancient path if it's something that might hinder your profound love and affection for Jesus Christ. Part of the great vagaries of our culture is that we are in love with ourselves and we want to tell everybody about it. That what we ought to project to the world is that we are incredible and profound love for Jesus Christ in light of who he is and what he did for us, and may that define us. Remove the obstacles. If there's something hindering your spiritual advance, get rid of it. Be quick about it. It's a reminder, something, a struggle that we have every day. Because obstacles come every day. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 14 is another way to look at this. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. That anything or anyone that jeopardizes the outcome must be jettisoned. If indeed this is a road-building metaphor, and I think that it is, brings incredible graphic sense of what is happening. I don't know if you've ever served on a construction crew that's a building right-of-ways, uh, but uh, it, 
It's a place of seemingly chaos, but all is choreographed. I mean, there's engineers looking at blueprints. There's the belching of black smoke from great massive beasts like caterpillar tractors, loud shouts, and all types of going-ons as if we have places to go and people to see. And indeed we do. We have a place to go in end-time Zion, and we have a person to see of utmost importance, the Lord, majesty of Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer of the people of God. So the part of the, what it means to get rid of obstacles and to build up the ways, to believe, repent, and follow. And follow we must. The great words of our Savior is the good shepherd, my sheep and my voice, I know them, and they follow me. That we are about the highway of God, and we're about him who leads us in that highway. Reminded every now and then of the great rock music, Highway to Heaven. Most of my music affinities are pre-Little Richard, so I don't really understand much of that. But I will tell you there is a highway to heaven. And there is but one guide. And there is but one scripture. Follow it, the invitation you must. The last imperative, again, lift up the standard. Lift up the standard. In the ancient battlefields, say the Civil War, the standards were flags. That's where you knew where the commander was. That's where you knew the, where the point of attack was. That's what you knew where you were to move to. That's how they communicated the standard. Uh, the standard was a banner that served to rally the people to action, in this case, a departure from Babylon and a return to Zion. Physical Zion, of course, but ultimately for us as Christians, eternal Zion. As a great picture of uh, this and what it means, uh, where the word standard is used in the book of the Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 21, there's been a time of rebellion, and God brings immediate judgment to that rebellion. He sends fiery serpents uh, to bite and to kill the people. Uh, Numbers chapter 21 and verses uh, 8 and 9 is an expression of the gospel. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard. The words of Isaiah chapter 62. Set it on a standard shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks on it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked on the bronze serpent, he lived. Look to Christ. He's the standard. Follow him wherever he leads. Remember that he is the incarnate word, that he has left us the written word, and his word is to be a light into our feet and a lamp into our path. Get your eyes off of the word, you'll find yourself in Bypath Meadow in a strange place that you know not of, of incredible peril, so heed the invitation to follow the standard of Christ. Seven invitations, a couple of them are repetitive. And now the reasons. Uh, for all of its urgency and focus uh, of the invitations, so we have the reasons to respond uh, in verses uh, 11 and 12 of Isaiah chapter 62. Uh, 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Uh, salvation comes. A parallel verse in Zechariah 9, 9 of the coming of the Messiah, riding upon the colt of an ass. Uh, Matthew alludes both to Zechariah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 62 in the fulfillment of this text in the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem as his identity as the great messianic king. Salvation has come. It's come. It's a powerful attestation of the deity of Christ. And of course, you and I know something else. He's coming again to all those who are in his way and about his business. Uh, John alludes to this text in Revelation uh, chapter 22 uh, in verse 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. That's the second reason to respond to the seven invitations, that his reward and his recompense are with him. Christ is the fulfillment. The context is the exhortation to godly living. Uh, to realize that there are false disciples who are not responding to the summons to jettison their obstacles and who think that they are saved. We know that because in the previous text of Revelation 22, there's an allusion to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 10 of confessing believers who continue to act wickedly in light of the dawning of the greatness of the majesty of salvation. False members of the covenant community do not realize that Daniel's prophecy and Isaiah's prophecy has started and therefore continue to com compromise their faith. And they don't sense any danger. And they keep acting as if nothing at all is happening. Christ has come in his triumphal entry, ho-hum, turn the alarm off and go back to sleep. Uh, in contrast, the righteous act appropriately is defined by Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 10 in following the standard. Our Lord's coming in judgment to reward good works and to punish false works, I simply say by way of reminder, is not in the context of justification, but rather as acts of vindicating uh, that we are the faithful people of God on his way and following him. Again, our works don't save us. They're evidence that we have been saved by the grace of God. But again, let's come back to uh, the third reason, Isaiah chapter 62, uh, to respond to the great invitation. And that is because God will rename us. He will rename us in eternity. Uh, Isaiah 62, 12, and they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of God. We respond to the invitation of God because he will rename us as part of the rewards previously discussed. And we are called the holy people. Experientially, we come what we were so designated in our justification and in our commissioning as the disciples of Christ. We achieve the design of our redemption. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And then in the end state, God makes us entirely, absolutely holy. And we will live with him world without end. The great cycle completed, 
And as well, we find here our renaming the redeemed of the Lord. Our Savior purchased us and became our surety. The Old Testament kinsman redeemer was obligated to rescue his family and to settle debts. That's what Christ did for us. We are his family. He rescued us from the danger of the slavery of sin. He became our surety and he canceled every certificate of debt that consisted of decrees against us because he paid it in full. Lastly, the eternal city of Zion is called a sought out, a city not forsaken. One of the complaints of the children of Israel is that they thought that God had forgotten them and God had forsaken them. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14. And God answers them and says, how could I forget you? I've engraved your names upon my hand. I could not forget you. I could no more forget you than a nursing mother could forget its child. The love of God for his people to come uh, to redeem them, to gather them to eternity. The complaint of uh, the people of God forever reversed. Uh, and, so, and so this invitation uh, has a third great impetus as to why we should respond because in eternity we will be renamed. There's an ad on television that I, I, I shake my head at. Perhaps you haven't seen it. It's an insurance ad. I think, uh, I think the company's progressive insurance. Uh, uh, one of the acolytes of the company is uh, leading a choir. Uh, the words of the hymn that the choir is singing is something to the effect that uh, ooh, heaven is a place called earth. Oh, really? If that's the best we're going to get, my friend, we ought to just leave the way and forsake it. Uh, but it's not the best. Uh, this earth bears nothing of the beauty and the majesty of eternity. You can go to the greatest mountain ranges in all of the United States of America. You can go to its great national parks like Glacier and Yellowstone. You can go see it all, the grand majesty, but it is nothing. It's chump change to the glories that await us in heaven that compel us to respond to the invitation to get on the way, to follow the standard, to reject and to jettison all obstacles in light of what awaits us as the great reward at the end that's already begun in our hearts because of our justification. I mean, the great patriarch was looking for a city whose builder and architect was God. That is our faith. We're looking for a heavenly city. And then he turns right around. The author of the book of Hebrews says, we've already come into it. Uh, that Jerusalem is our mother, saved by the grace and majesty of God, already claims us, and our citizenship is already in heaven. Our in-state sealed because of Christ. Uh, but nonetheless, the duty to get on the way, to stay on the way, to remain faithful to the end. The sure and certain hope that while we go to him, he comes for us. Comes for us. And so if you're not a Christian, ladies and gentlemen, don't know the Savior, uh, it is this invitation that is the most profound invitation of all time that confronts you. Leave the city of ruin for the eternal Zion. Jettison the obstacles. 
stay on the old clear path and follow the great standard who is Christ and Christ alone. It's the greatest invitation of all time. I'm not against you responding to other invitations. We all have to. Your boss invites you to lunch. You go to lunch. Maybe you have a favorite political candidate and you want to respond to the invitation to write a check. Again, that's simply your matter of conscience and liberty and freedom. Ah, but this invitation, you reject at peril in everlasting ruin. And as well, if you have responded to it, stay the course. You'll never regret it. That heaven comes to envelop you, to see you to the end, and you will be blessed beyond measure. In fact, in the words of the Apostle Paul, I have not seen nor ear heard everything that God has for those who love him and his Savior. Seven imperatives, seven invitations. They invite us to salvation as defined by the prophet. And then they give us three reasons to so respond. Salvation has come. Christ has a reward and recompense. And in the end, he will rename us as his holy people, redeemed of the Lord. If you have not so responded, today is the day of salvation. If you have, continue faithful. God will bless you beyond all measure. And may God so bless us this morning in the understanding of his eternal word.